Hello and welcome to episode 208 of Turkey Book Talk. Thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. Remember to follow Turkey Book Talk over at Twitter or X, Instagram and or Facebook. I'm also on Blue Sky if you're on there too. This is our final episode of 2023. In exactly two weeks time, it's going to be Boxing Day. So please forgive me. I'm not going to be publishing an episode on that day. The next episode will be our first of 2024 arriving on the 2nd of January. So thank you in advance for your patience and many thanks, of course, for lending your ears throughout this year. It's been intense. Earthquakes, wars, elections, all kinds of business. We've published some terrific episodes and of course, I'm looking forward to many more next year. I hope you are too. We're closing out 2023 with a great episode, welcoming back Berk Essen, Associate Professor of Political Science and International Relations at Istanbul's Sabancı University. Burke is a prolific and sophisticated commentator on Turkish politics and recently co-authored, along with Hakan Yavuz Yilmaz and Shebnem Gümüşçü, a new book published in Turkish by İletişim called Türkiye'nin Yeni Rejimi Rekabetçi Otoriterlik or Turkey's New Regime Competitive Authoritarianism. In our conversation, we dig into some of the themes explored in that book, muse about the troubled future of democracy in Turkey, and consider what role opposition parties can play in the very difficult circumstances they find themselves in. But before we get started with this last episode of the year, let me appeal once again for support. Christmas is just around the corner, so if you are looking to treat yourself or indeed a loved one to an amazing Christmas present, why not consider doing a good festive deed by joining as a Turkey Book Talk member? This podcast does take a lot of time and effort to prepare, edit and piece together, and I do need listeners' support, your support, to be able to keep doing it. Since launching the podcast back in 2015, we've given a platform to researchers and authors of books related to Turkish history, politics, society, literature and the arts. It's extremely rewarding to put the podcast together and publish an episode every couple of weeks, and I sincerely hope it remains useful for everyone who listens. Turkey Book Talk is completely independent, with no institutional links, no sponsorships. It depends 100% on the goodwill of listeners like you. So if you are in a position where you can support, please consider doing so via Patreon. Consider becoming a Turkey Book Talk member. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member isn't just a nice thing to do. It also gets you some pretty good extras. Those extras include a terrific discount of 35% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman history series. Hundreds of Turkey and Ottoman history titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury are available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 35% discount. As a member, you get a special code to use at the online checkout and you can use it to purchase physical books, pre-orders or ebooks. If you're already a member, check out the email for this episode because the discount codes have been extended or updated for 2024. So the latest codes are in the latest email. Turkey Book Talk members also receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. 
Members also receive an archive of 231 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, in addition to all that, I send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is ideal if you want to delve a bit deeper. To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3 Euros, or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, €3 Euros, or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. It's inflation-proof and there are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now, on to our conversation with Burke Essen. We had this conversation just before news broke that the opposition alliance itself had broken with the E party announcing that it would enter the March 2024 local elections with its own mayoral candidates. That really does make the opposition's task much more difficult. Ekrem Imamoglu in Istanbul and Mansour Yavash in Ankara were able to succeed in 2019, largely thanks to the United Opposition Front back then. We mentioned that issue in passing in the conversation, but of course we didn't know at the time that the opposition alliance would indeed split. But this is still, I think, a very rich conversation charting the lay of the land in Turkish politics as we enter 2024. We started by looking back at the aftermath of the parliamentary and presidential elections in May this year, of course won by President Erdogan and his ruling alliance. After the election, a lot of observers suggested that it was Turkish democracy's last chance and that we are now in an irreversibly authoritarian environment with no chance of democratic redress. So I started by asking Berk Essen, did he share that assessment? Looking at the May election, I actually think that it was a missed opportunity for the opposition because I actually thought that this was the perfect storm for President Erdogan. Turkey was faced with a major economic downturn that had been ongoing for years, sharp currency depreciation, high inflation, rising poverty levels, particularly affecting citizens living in major urban areas. And on top of that, of course, in February, Around three months before the general elections were held, Turkey was shaken by a major earthquake that affected 10 provinces across the board in southern and southeastern part of the country. And it was quite clear that the government didn't particularly do a good job of helping the citizens living in that region and particularly with the rescue efforts. And of course, the opposition was rather united. And by contrast, the ruling party was not really doing well. So it seemed as if if this regime was going to change through the ballot box, it was this. And so, of course, when the opposition lost, I, I really felt bad because such opportunities rarely uh, occur in electoral authoritarian regimes. And I think uh, this was the case with majority of the opposition voters who now feel demoralized. And at least some of them may have lost their hope for uh, achieving political change through the ballot box, at least as, as long as Erdogan is in office, as long as Erdogan remains in, in politics. So I think this is the situation that the opposition faces in the post-election period. Now, I don't necessarily think that Turkey is headed in, in a direction whereby a, a fully-fledged autocracy is going to emerge. 
You know, since 2015, I have stopped classifying the Turkish political system as a democratic one because, of course, we don't have free or fair elections. Yes, elections are held regularly, but of course, the conditions are such that the playing field is tilted against the opposition. So that's why I don't think that that situation has changed dramatically. I think both prior to the election as well as in the aftermath of the election, we have neither free nor fair elections. The playing field is still tilted against the opposition. Maybe the opposition is a bit more demoralized compared to, say, six months ago. Uh, But I think the fundamental dynamics of the regime hasn't changed. And I think structurally speaking, it's going to be very difficult for Erdogan to establish a fully fledged autocracy uh, in Turkey, a, a regime that comes close to uh, to Russia, because demographically speaking, Turkey has a fairly sizable young population. And of course, those young voters tend to be on average a bit more secular than their parents, much more urban uh, than their parents. Of course, Turkey is a heterogeneous society with sizable ethnic and religious minorities. I'm referring to the Kurdish minority, a Kurdish ethnic minority, and of course, the Alevi religious minority. So it will be very difficult really to change the composition of the Turkish electorate and significantly weaken the opposition. Having said that, I think what we may experience in the upcoming local elections is that if the opposition parties cannot establish an alliance and put forward joint candidates, considering that that is exactly what the ruling alliance will do, we may actually see the opposition lose most of the municipal governments that it controls, especially in major cities. And if that happens, of course, opposition parties will be deprived of material and political resources that they need in order to put up a strong fight against the ruling alliance at a time when the playing field is tilted. So we may actually see the opposition parties continue to get weaker in the next couple of years, especially if the local elections are won by the incumbent. But I think there will be a li- there will be a limit as to how powerful the authoritarian regime can get in the Turkish context. I already mentioned the demographic factors, but of course, on top of that, these strong autocracies such as Russia, such as Venezuela, such as Malaysia until recent times that continue to exercise elections, but these elections are not really competitive. Those are generally rentier states. In other words, states that have access to very sizable natural gas or oil resources, uh, these lucrative commodities whose profits can be reaped by the regime and then distributed to the uh, voters en masse to, to create a stable base. Erdogan doesn't have that luxury. Erdogan faces a growing population, actually a fairly young population, with an increasing number of migrants. And if he does not provide economic stability and growth, it's going to be difficult for him in the medium run, so in the next five years, to stabilize the situation. So I'm rather pessimistic in the short run, not so pessimistic in the midterm and and and long term. Now, we're talking just a few weeks after the recent leadership change in the CHP. So out went long-running leader Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu and in came Özgür Özel. So now the leader of the main opposition party is Özgür Özel, relatively younger figure. And you're talking there about this widespread disillusionment and apathy that has been very clear in Turkey since the May election, a major loss of interest in politics. Do you think this process of the leadership change can somehow at least start to reverse that process, re-energize the opposition? 
Well, I don't think that the leadership change within CHP is going to have a negative impact on the electoral prospects of the main opposition party. Now, I don't at this point know what exactly would be the benefit of this leadership change. I think it really depends on the campaign that is waged by the new leader of the main opposition party. It it also partly depends on whether or not CHP and E-Party will be able to secure some kind of coordination or or cooperation or partnership of some sort during the local election. So, you know, much is to be decided in the next couple of months. But had Kılıçdaroğlu stayed on as a leader, I think it would have been an electoral wipeout for the main opposition party. Not only because of the fact that even CHP voters are at this point very disillusioned by the fact that Kılıçdaroğlu insisted on becoming the joint candidate for the opposition, even though I think there were far better, far more popular, far more charismatic candidates than him. But that, you know, after losing the election, despite his rather old age relative to other uh, potential uh, candidates, he continued to stay on and in fact ended up purging some of his closest allies and replaced them with sycophants. And that really signified to the voters that uh, the CHP leadership was out of touch. So the fact that CHP managed to change its leader through a fairly democratic process within the party, you know, through this national convention, set a strong and important precedent in Turkish politics that it really shows that CHP is an institutionalized party, you know, with some ability to change its own leadership through normal uh, means, which rarely happens in Turkish politics. It actually shows that the CHP cadres are, are autonomous or somewhat autonomous. So I think the leadership change is going to have some kind of a positive effect on the electoral situation. You know, it might help overcome demoralization. I think it will increase the prospects of some mayoral candidates from CHP ranks, such as the Istanbul mayor, Ekrem İmamoğlu, or Ankara mayor, Mansur Yavash to win re-election in the upcoming local elections. And of course, it also gives the main opposition party to chance to, on the one hand, come up with maybe fresh faces as candidates for the local election, again, increasing the party's ability to, to cultivate stronger ties with the voters. But it also gives the party a new lifeline, really, to seek uh, negotiations with the party, because, of course, there has been a very strong feud between the former CHP leader Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu and the E-Party leader Meral Akşener. The latter refused to endorse Kılıçdaroğlu's candidacy until very late. And since then, relations between the two leaders and by extension, relations between the two parties has really been very negative. Uh, so at least this leadership change maybe offers some hope to reinitiate talks between the two parties. But of course, beyond that, it really comes down to what sort of a job Özgür Özel will do. I'm somewhat ambivalent in the answer to this question. I haven't really made up my mind fully because, of course, Özgür Özel had a leadership position within the Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu CHP. So he, he, he shares some of the blame for the major defects and shortcomings of the main opposition party. And many of the people who have risen to leadership positions under his watch since the convention that was held last month are also not new, new faces. So we need to really wait and see 
whether or not Özgür Özel will be able to energize the base, whether or not he will be able to expand the party's outreach efforts so that new voters can be recruited by the main opposition party, and three, whether or not he'll be able to change the mid-level mid officials so that CHP becomes a party that is open to change, a party that appeals to young voters and uh, women voters, and, and not just at the voter level, but also at the candidate level. That is to be to be seen. He obviously faces a daunting task, Özgür Özel. And as you say, there are these question marks about his leadership and the direction he's going to take. It's quite hard to deduce a kind of strategy. Uh, that really wasn't at the centre of his campaign for the leadership. He did really offer a kind of alternative vision. It was more just let's re-energise things. But a bit like Imamoglu, really, he's he was just uh, emphasising this call for change rather than really filling out what that would mean. But at least he's a younger figure. At least he you know, has a potential at least to, to take the party in a different direction to what uh, Kilis Drolo offered. But pessimists might say that you know, even if he did a fantastic job and really made the CHP a credible alternative, the logic now of authoritarianism in Turkey is so enshrined under Erdogan. They would say that if a genuine challenger actually did emerge to Erdogan's political project, then the logic suggests that he would just remove them from the scene legally. So according to that view, opposition leaders are basically now in a catch-22 situation where if they do a good job politically and start to actually look like a genuine challenge to the government, they basically face elimination. And of course, we've seen various legal cases opened against anybody who challenges Erdogan's authority at this stage. So do you think that that is the logic that now dominates Turkish politics, where anybody posing a challenge is basically under threat of elimination from the political scene? Well, that is certainly a clear risk that the opposition faces in this competitive authoritarian regime. That's the term that I myself, as well as a number of uh, colleagues, use to characterize the composition of the regime in Turkey. We have regular elections, and elections are really the only means to come to power in, in Turkey, and no one really disputes the outcome of these elections. But the playing field is tilted against the opposition, uh, such that elections are neither free nor fair. And of course, one way through which the playing field has been tilted against the opposition is exactly what you mentioned in your question, and that whenever Erdogan really faces a strong electorally viable competitor or a rival, he can use the partisan judiciary to eliminate such challenge. And, uh, you know, it's not necessarily something new. Of course, uh, Ekrem Imamoglu has been publicly banned. Uh, the case is now facing the appeal process. But of course, six years before that, in 2016, Selatin Demirtas was arrested. And uh, for the last seven years, he's been in prison. And uh, you could actually argue that before Imamoglu, it was Selatin Demirtas who really put up a strong effort to change this government and ended up energizing a lot of voters and managed to really transform the Kurdish national uh, movement to bring votes from, from the Turkish constituencies, which allowed the Kurdish party to cross the 10% electoral threshold and costed AKP its parliamentary majority in June 2015. So this is, this is nothing new. So that's why, for me, it's not really a question of whether or not Erdogan will do this. Erdogan certainly will contemplate 
using judiciary as a strategic tool to eliminate his rivals. So for me, it, it's it's less of a question of whether or not it's going to happen, but more a question of whether or not this will succeed. And there, the answer does not fully lie, lie with Erdogan. I think it also comes down to the actions and strategies that are employed by the opposition. If the opposition can persuade the voters that these are politically charged cases and that banning a certain politician goes against the interests of the uh, electorate, and especially if the main opposition party can mobilize its base in such a way that it increases the costs for Erdogan to take such an action, then it might not be easy for Erdogan to do it. And I think the Imamoglu case gives us both sides of the coin. I think the fact that CHP leadership at the time did not highlight this case enough. In fact, Kılıçdaroğlu was not even in the country, uh, you know, on the day that a, a verdict was given on the Imamoglu case. He was visiting Berlin, I think deliberately. The regime could really take such an action. But the appeal process has continued and we have not necessarily heard back. And I think it's not so easy. It, is, it would not be so easy for Erdogan to really fully ban Imamoli because Imamoli remains a popular politician. He reaches out to almost the entire opposition camp, maybe even some pro-government voters. That is something, for instance, the Kurdish nationalist movement could not do or was not allowed to do because, of course, many Turkish nationalist voters, when it comes to the Kurdish mayors or Kurdish leadership figures like Selahattin Demirtas, they turn a blind eye to those politically charged cases. So I think it really comes down to whether or not the opposition will be able to put up a strong front to increase the cost for Erdogan to do it. And I think there the jury is uh, still out. Now, we saw from the 2019 local election results that Erdogan is a pragmatic leader, that he he considers using extra judicial or extra constitutional means to keep AKP in, in office. And he did it in 2019 local elections in Istanbul by basically repeating the Istanbul vote on fictitious grounds. But the second time around, when the voters again cast their ballots for an opposition figure, he abided by those results. So I don't like these analyses that portray Erdogan as this omnipresent figure, powerful enough to do everything. I think it's a much better, it will be a much better analysis to sort of consider that he has a lot of options, but maybe not sufficient power to exercise all, especially if the opposition is strong enough. Uh, so uh, I think the Imamoglu uh, appeal process will be postponed beyond the local elections. And if Imamoglu can win the local elections in Istanbul, I think it's going to be exceedingly difficult for Erdogan to get rid of him, which would give opposition another few years to regroup, reorganize and transform itself. Uh, in the meantime, of course, Erdogan is now an aging authoritarian leader. And these kind of authoritarian regimes, yes, they don't lose power easily, especially after having survived for nearly two decades. I mean, it's it's really a very difficult task to change such a regime. But of course, the current regime is getting weaker. When you look at, for instance, the AKP's vote share, it's now down to 35%, which is what they had in November 2002 elections when they first came to power. So it's really a matter of whether or not the opposition will be able to transform itself establish intra-party democracy, revitalize its list of candidates, and then offer uh, voters a credible alternative. If they can do all, Erdogan will try to engage in some anti-democratic measures, but 
he may not be able to get away with it. You know, that's why this is, I think, a political process whose outcome we cannot be sure. Now, as I already told you in uh, in my answer to your first question, I'm rather a bit more on the pessimistic side that the local elections may will, will not be a landslide victory for the opposition, at least as much as it was in 2019, and that the opposition faces an uphill battle in retaining its municipal governments across the country. So we need to wait and see what kind of a job the opposition uh, will do uh, in the coming election cycle, and then we can maybe reassess these analyses uh, on the Turkish political system. One of the major questions before the May election was the state of the economy, obviously. Uh, We had this very high inflation, record-breaking inflation, and that was widely seen as a result of the government strategy, basically its economic policy, reducing interest rates despite that very high inflation. And this was basically seen by some commentators. Those policies were seen as a result, actually, of the erosion of democracy. So this institutional erosion that Turkey's seen for a number of years was actually precipitating an economic meltdown. So Erdogan was just able to basically create this or, or impose this mad theory of reducing interest rates. Since the election, he's reversed that policy. There's been this much vaunted, quote unquote, return to orthodoxy. And, you know, that would seem to throw into question really this theory that the erosion of those institutional, that institutional quality will necessarily lead to economic meltdown. The the system can basically correct itself. Erdogan can recalibrate and return to this kind of uh, uh, orthodox economic policymaking and do that despite maintaining this iron grip on power. It, It raises that interesting question of can you have a functioning and effective orthodox economic system without democracy? And it seems like, at least in the short term, this quote-unquote return to orthodoxy is actually taking place without any kind of major institutional reform on the government side. And in fact, you know, the the Erdogan regime is just becoming more and more entrenched in power. So what's your take on that in the kind of macro terms of the health of Turkey's democracy? You know, is it possible, do you think, for this shift to orthodoxy to continue to be sustainable, despite the fact that Erdogan is centralizing power around himself and basically gaining even more authority over various levers of power? Well, I think over the last few decades, we've seen around the globe a number of authoritarian regimes that mixed closed political systems with orthodox economic measures. So Turkey is not necessarily going to be an exception in that sense or the only example that is available. I think there have been some experiments that try to merge both. I think you're right to focus on institutional capacity or the autonomy of economic institutions in this orthodox model. I don't think that Erdogan will be able to leave much power to technocrats who are currently running Turkish economy. So I so I think this will remain as a as a hybrid model of a regime that introduces some orthodox measures, especially when it comes to interest rates to lower the uh, inflation rate, while keeping the decision-making authority at the hands of Erdogan, who already has a very personalistic leadership. And he's really free to change course whenever uh, he likes. And I think he will, you know, he will really decide on the basis of 
how much resources his government has at its disposal in order to promote a populist uh, economic agenda and how constrained his government is vis-a-vis the international uh, financial markets. And I think up until the recent presidential elections, he thought that he had some leeway, which is why he followed these, he increased government spending and really adopted a number of fairly populist measures to win the election. And then upon winning, I don't think that the Turkish Central Bank had sufficient reserves to be able to continue those policies. So he switched course. But of course, there's nothing really holding him back other than economic constraints from making a similar switch two months or two years uh, down the line. So I wouldn't read too much into that. And in fact, when you look at uh, Erdogan's economic policies over the years, this has generally been the case. Maybe not to this extent, so the scale may uh, may have increased, but Erdogan, as an astute leader, of course, really tries to increase government spending during election years in order to increase the AKP's vote share and usually succeeds in doing that. In fact, I would say that right now there is a common populist playbook, especially one that is employed by successful right-wing populist leaders, right, such as Modi, such as Erdogan, such as Viktor Orban, where they try to lower the interest rate and offer all sorts of targeted benefits to their voters. In the case of Turkey, gas subsidies, cheap state bank credits to shopkeepers, early retirement, high salaries uh, for the minimum wage, high salaries for uh, retired people, you know, policies to keep unemployment rates fairly low. And these policies, of course, help cushion some of the negative effects of the economic downturn for Erdogan's electoral base. Because, of course, as is the case with many right-wing populist parties, Erdogan's party also gets a big portion of its vote share from non-college educated, mostly male voters uh, who either live in the outskirts of major cities or in the Anatolian provinces or the countryside. And these are the sort of uh, areas where government spending really change the living standards of voters. And I think by pumping so much money into the economy, Erdogan could appeal to millions of voters who at the end of the day had an economic reason for voting for Erdogan as well. Paradoxically, of course, against the backdrop of this economic downturn. This is partly because, you know, many of these people do not really work in very productive sectors. They work for minimum wage jobs. Many of them really depend on social assistance programs that are financed by the government. So by basically reducing the productivity levels of the Turkish economy, Erdogan can expand employment opportunities for his own voters who don't really have the skills to work in jobs that pay higher than the minimum wage, and it restricts the size of the middle classes which vote for the opposition. And of course, couple that with brain drain that Turkey is facing, you know, that really constrains the opposition more than the government's base. And, you know, this is not necessarily a self-sustaining strategy that can go on for 20 years, but it can help Erdogan win uh, the election. I think Orban is doing pretty much the same in in Hungary with similarly positive uh, results. So I think that's a common problem. And in order to overcome that, the main opposition or the opposition alliance or the main opposition party has to really convey to at least a, a certain portion of the government base 
that their benefits will continue under an opposition-controlled government. In fact, those benefits will probably increase because the overall economic situation will improve. In the Turkish context, let me just highlight the fact that Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, the opposition's joint candidate, did not even announce his chief economics advisor or the person who will become the uh, minister of economics. In other words, the opposition alliance did not focus on the economy enough and could not really convey to the voters that they are really ready to take on the mantle of power. And there was certainly no face to the opposition's economic agenda. I mean, I know that there were several names who were discussed as potential contenders. But when you are in such a crisis situation and you need to persuade some government voters, you need to be able to put a face to your arguments. And I think the opposition failed to do that. Had they done it, maybe with a better candidate, they would have achieved more positive results. At the end of today, they lost the election by 48 to 52%, which of course, not a very close margin, but it's not a huge margin either. I also want to ask about the international conjecture and how that might affect the situation, because it seems like in the emerging global situation that we have with the US and China increasingly competing and camps emerging aligned with either country, and also, of course, a number of ambitious middle powers emerging, trying to carve out their own, basically uh, the re-emergence of geopolitics, essentially, if it ever did disappear. It seems naive to think that this new international, highly competitive consensus is really going to contribute positively to Turkey's democratization, at least in terms of its relations with the West, because it seems like other priorities are now going to take precedence. In the past, you know, previous decades, we can remember times when this idea of democratization in Turkey was closely associated with integration with the West. So there was a sense that the EU process would lead to, to higher democratic standards in Turkey, and it was kind of instrumentalized in that way. I don't think now anybody is really expecting Western countries to to play that role, to support democratization. And even if they did somehow shift and, and start to do so, it seems like, you know, such is the level of skepticism within Turkish society towards the West, that probably wouldn't have a very positive effect. You know, people would just be extremely cynical about such a move and would not be receptive to it. So it seems almost like Turkey's now been cut off in terms of those, that old idea of integrating with the West in the name of democratization. So with this like new consensus emerging globally, you know, what do you think, what impact will that have on the fate essentially of Turkey's democracy? And are there sort of new channels that have to now be explored in terms of, you know, domestically how people who want to see a more democratic system emerge, are they going to have to find new channels to pursue that? Well, I think you're spot on right that uh, international conditions are no longer favorable to the democratization process in Turkey. And I think one could say the same thing for many other countries in the global south. Throughout the 1990s and 2000s, Western countries, and to be more exact, US in the Western Hemisphere and the European Union in this part of the world, had really actively pushed for democracy promotion efforts that ended up fueling democratization processes in countries that 
that that found themselves in the borderline. Uh, in other words, regimes that could have gone in either direction ended up becoming more democratic, partly because of this external pressure coming from uh, Western countries. And of course, at the time, Chinese economy was, yes, growing very rapidly, but China did not necessarily have a very sizable presence in international politics. And Russia was a very weak player, still experiencing the negative effects of the disintegration of or dissolution of the Soviet Union. Of course, fast forward 20 years, we face a completely different international situation. Not only that these Western democracy promoters are no longer as strong as they were and experiencing their own problems of democratic erosion, you know, what U.S. is going through with Trump presidency and now his candidacy and what, of course, European Union is experiencing uh, with right-wing populist governments running, you know, Slovakia, Hungary, until recent times, Poland, and of course, far-right populist actors rising through the ranks in Italy, France, Germany, most recently in Netherlands. You know, that pressure is no longer there. And of course, I'm, I'm under no illusion that external factors alone can push for democratization in a country. I mean, other than post-World War II Germany and Japan, it's very difficult to really see cases that serve as an example to, to the external push argument. But I think external factors could sway the outcome to a certain extent. And so what we're going to have in Turkey is that at least within the next decade or so, we're not necessarily going to see external actors play a contributing role to democratization. You know, there are many reasons for this is just that the Russo-Ukrainian war, the migration crisis have all increased the leverage of Erdogan government. And I think he uses this very effectively, including in the most recent example of Swedish membership to NATO. But I think even more concerning for Turkey, because these Western actors are not are not going to help democratization, but they're not going to also push for autocratization in Turkey either. They just leave the domestic actors on their own. What I think is more concerning for pro-democracy forces in Turkey is the existence of so-called authoritarian black knights. In other words, authoritarian regimes that are close to, to Erdogan and that really give uh, his regime support. Cases like Qatar, Russia, maybe not so much China in the Turkish case, but I think China is a big player for countries like Hungary. You know, these authoritarian regimes provide Erdogan government with sometimes diplomatic support, sometimes with military support, in other cases, political or economic support that really allow the regime to survive against these challenges from the opposition ranks beyond its means. And this spending spree that Erdogan engaged in, in the lead up to the 2023 elections, was partly, I think, made possible by this external support that Erdogan received, not necessarily from the West but rather from these authoritarian regimes. You know, Putin postponing Turkey's payment of Russian gas, undocumented money coming from Qatar, deals that are being waged with United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, all these swap deals that are made with a number of these cases have all allowed Erdogan to sort of live beyond his means until, of course, he won the he won the election. And so, you know, I don't necessarily see any good reason for this to change, which means that pro-democracy actors in Turkey have to really push for this fight on their own terms and with their own resources.
I think you're also very right to suggest that looking at Turkish history, periods of rapid democratization were generally accompanied with Turkey's closer integration to the West, particularly uh, to Europe. And the best example for that is the democratization process that speeded up after Turkey became a candidate country for the European Union in 1999 and continued well into uh, the 2000s, maybe up until 2005 when Turkey started accession talks. There will not be such a process, at least anytime soon. So the pro-democracy actors really need to figure out better strategies that really deal with this uh, shortcoming, because they cannot really rely on external uh, actors, and there's really no point in in them uh, doing so. No, I don't want to end this conversation on a pessimistic note, but I will do anyway, because I want to ask about One of the long-term structural shifts that seems to be emerging is the increasing flow of educated, opposition-minded people generally outside of the country. So in other words, a brain drain. And I think everybody here sort of senses this. Almost every conversation seems to be touched by this issue here. And I was just reading a a piece written recently, Kemal Kirishi wrote, I'll, I'll send a link out to members. He wrote about this issue and he talked about it as a exodus of professionals. And he said that, quote, clearly what's happening is a classic example of a brain drain. Under Erdogan's one man rule and following the dismal performance of the opposition in the recent elections, there is a sense that politics has come to an end. All channels to express dissatisfaction with Erdogan's rule and seek change, civil society elections, the judiciary, the media, parliament and peaceful protest, for example, are blocked. So he paints there a very pessimistic picture that is directly resulting in potentially a very significant uh, demographic shift. And obviously, if that continues and accelerates even, this poses a huge challenge to the future of the country and, of course, to its democracy and its economy, of course. So how much of a threat do you think, to conclude, does this tendency of a brain drain pose to the prospects of ever returning Turkey to a, a more democratic system? Well, you certainly ask a pessimistic question, but I'll try to, you know, I'll try not to give a pessimistic answer because I'm rather ambivalent on this question. And as as someone, you know, who's who's an avid reader of political history, I feel that one has always room for being optimistic, especially if you can look from from the perspective of long-term analysis. In the case of Turkey, I think you're very right, and Kemal Kilishci is certainly right in suggesting that Turkey is currently facing uh, the brain drain problem, and this problem is particularly poignant in the age category of 25 to 40-year-olds, so people who are graduating just out of college or just out of the graduate program, all the way till basically people who now have a settled life in Turkey and children. And for them, settling in a new country is very costly. So people who are in their 20s and 30s are the ones who are leaving. And in terms of the occupation, the people who are in higher rates, at least leaving the country, are doctors and engineers. So the the two top occupations that developing countries really uh, need. Now, having said that, Turkey is a country of 85 million people. So I think even though we experience brain drain, the scale is different from, say, countries like Bulgaria or Romania or even Hungary, that I think even within the European Union experienced a very sharp brain drain coupled with significant demographic constraints. 
such that the population is in decline, that they're losing their young people, and most of the young people who are leaving the country are professionals. In the case of Turkey, partly because of still relatively high birth rates, although that is that is also changing over the last two years, but historically speaking, and also because of the migration into the country, the population is not in decline, and the people who are coming, some of them are also professionals. You know, think, think of the Ukrainian and the Russian professionals who came to Turkey over the last two years uh, because of the war. And because Turkey has 85 million people, it's a lot more difficult for EU member states to give work permits or visas to everyone who wants to leave Turkey. That's different in a case like Hungary, where you have freedom of movement because of European Union and the population is 8 million. So, you know, no one really fears an exodus of Hungarians to, say, France or Germany. But in the case of Turkey, when you have 85 million people, I think many EU member states are very careful to not offer work permits to hundreds of thousands of people. So in that sense, the scale of the brain drain is still limited. And I think Turkey can replace the people who are leaving with the incoming population. But, you know, of course, there's a reason why we call this brain drain. I think Turkey is not losing all of its engineers and all of its doctors, but it's losing its best doctors and its best engineers. So in 10 years time, we're not necessarily going to run out of engineers or doctors or professionals, but the people who are left will have a lower level of education, maybe a lower level of experience, lower level of productivity, which Turkey can reverse if it can democratize its political system. So even though I do agree with this pessimistic assessment, I actually think think that there is still some room for improvement and a, and a rather more optimistic analysis. Having said that, I think Turkey is approaching really a juncture, and I don't know what the cutoff year will be. Maybe it's going to be the 2024 local elections, maybe it's going to be 2025 or 2026. But I actually think that both the opposition and the ruling alliance are getting weaker. Opposition, you know, for the simple reason that they're losing and that they have difficulty revitalizing themselves, you know, notwithstanding the CHP leadership change, and that inter-party democracy structures within opposition parties is also very minimal. But on the other hand, the ruling party is not doing a good job of replacing its own cadres. Certainly in Erdogan, they face a huge succession problem. Erdogan is now in his low 70s, still a young age for a Middle Eastern authoritarian leader, but his health doesn't seem to be in the best shape. Physically, he looks frail. You know, who's going to step up to run the country after him is a big question mark. Management of the economy continue to constitute a major challenge, even for Erdogan. You know, he can win elections, but barely. And he can make this economy work, but only barely. And I don't know if that will continue for years on end. And of course, when you add to this mix the migration challenge that Turkey faces. Now, because of the sheer size of its population, Turkey actually has a huge absorption capacity when it comes to these in- incoming migrants. But we now have close to four. 0.5 million migrants, and this is putting a, con- a limit as to Turkey's resources. This will continue to uh, create challenges for the regime. So that's why I'm ambivalent because you know it's it's like watching a football match where you have both sides come close to scoring a goal, but you don't see a goal. One of these sides will score a goal at some point in the next two to three years. 
maybe the opposition will retain Istanbul and Ankara and that will give them some room for growth. And then the following year, when an economic crisis hits Turkey or when migrationary or earthquake related popular pressures really challenge the government, who knows, we might see opposition make a comeback or the opposition lose the next election and we're still faced with these challenges and then Erdogan or whoever replaces him or whoever succeeds him ends up really pushing Turkey to head in an authoritarian direction and then all hell breaks loose because I still don't see structural factors enabling a transition to a fully fledged autocracy. So that's why I'm not, I'm neither optimistic nor pessimistic. I think Turkish politics requires somber analysis and one that is made with some perspective and with, uh, with an eye towards what happens in the local elections and, and beyond. That was Berk SN. Many thanks to him for joining for episode 208. Remember, this was our final episode of 2023. Our next episode will appear in three weeks due to Christmas and New Year. Hopefully you can manage to contain your anticipation until then. Also, please remember, we do need your support to keep Turkey Book Talk going. Christmas is just around the corner, so why not treat yourself or that special someone in your life to a Turkey Book Talk membership on Patreon. Membership gets you a 35% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Tourism Bloomsbury, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account and pledge $3, 3 euros or £2.50 per episode. Do also rate the podcast or write a positive review wherever you listen. Spread the word, give us a shout out on your social media accounts. Follow via our website, turkeybooktalk.com, our Twitter slash X, Facebook or Instagram accounts or all of them. Follow me, William Armstrong, on Blue Sky. Recommend Turkey Book Talk to a friend or a foe. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners. So do send any feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. Finally, let me once again remind you to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. They've got a Slack channel for signed up members who want more, and they also publish high quality original on the ground reporting. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in three weeks, thank you very much for listening to this episode and thank you for listening throughout 2023. We will speak again in 2024. Until then, farewell. Thank you.